Ahoy! It's your boy, and welcome to episode 80 of the podcast, This Is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Everywhere you find good podcasts, you'll find this one. Take a minute, rate and review us, give us five stars, type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why others will also, and if you can think of one person in your life who you think would like the show, send them your favorite episode. Also, video podcast is now live on YouTube. Uh, you can also find it at thisismpod.com. That's thisismpod.com. You'll see the latest episode with the video there. You can watch it on our website or click through and subscribe on our YouTube channel. And if you're watching the video podcast, you can see that your boy is super red today. Uh, I got sunburnt. Went on a hike with my girlfriend yesterday, uh, which is the first time we've gone on a hike in probably a couple months. Um... Yeah, and it's just super hot. Uh, in the Bay Area, the weather is uh, in flux. It's been kind of cold for a while, which I enjoy. You know, I'm one of these people I, I've talked about, I have seasonal affective disorder. And so when the weather gets cold, I get depressed for a little bit during that transition. But I also feel the exact same way when the weather's getting warmer, you know, and I have to peel off layers. I, I kind of like to bundle up. As much as like the gray and cold weather kind of makes me depressed, I, I also enjoy it aesthetically. <laughs> you know, I hate to sound like a poopy pants, but that's like, I enjoy that. You know, rain as I get older actually like kind of makes me sad when it happens on those days, but I like bundling up. I like wearing layers, you know, when I can't do that, when I just kind of have to wear, I don't know, I feel exposed, you know, maybe it's my, um, how, what did my girlfriend worded as like body insecurity or something like, I mean, I feel better in my body now that I'm like exercising. I, I've lost a little bit of weight. I think I've lost like 10 pounds so far, but I do feel a little exposed as I can't, as I can't like bundle up. I know. Not the most masculine thing to admit or say, but um, it's how I feel. And so I think when the weather warms up and it's like I can't hide in layers anymore, I feel kind of insecure. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, um, I'm red and I'm burnt. And uh, it's one of those things that I, I kind of knew when we when we were heading out. Um, we've been doing this thing where we've been, it's called the, the Bay, tra- what is it called? The Bay Trail. So around the whole Bay Area, there's, a, a, there's just a, a hiking trail. You can hike. around the entire Bay Area. It's not 100% contiguous, but, um, you know, there's a fair amount of it. So um, we've been sort of picking our way through that, starting kind of in south, kind of south Oakland, up through Berkeley, Albany, Richmond area. Then you hit like the whole kind of Crockett and Martinez area, hiked around there. Um, uh, We crossed the Crockett Bridge. We crossed, it's called the Martinez Benicia Bridge, I think is what it's called. But anyway, sorry, punch the mic. Um, hiked across that bridge, hiked around Benicia, and now um, we're kind of coming around back toward the Crockett Bridge. But we probably hiked like, I think like five miles or something yesterday, and it was completely exposed. The weather's warm, there wasn't a cloud in sight. And uh, when we started, I knew I probably should have put some sunscreen on, but I didn't. And uh, once we got about halfway, I was like, you know, I'm definitely feeling like I'm getting some sun. Um, but by that point, it was too late. Um, but it felt good to be active, too. It felt good to get some vitamin D on my skin. And uh, hiking is one of those things that I don't always look forward to it. But I guess like any exercise, I feel happy once I have done it. So life is good. You know, I told you at the uh, on the last episode, I got my second round of the vaccine. And I don't know what I said about it because I, I got it last Thursday. And I felt kind of sick for the first like two days after that. Had to leave work early a little bit, kind of sleep in, slept till like noon the next day or something like that. But then I felt fine. 
and three or four days went by. And then Wednesday of this week, halfway through the week, I felt fucking awful. I woke up and I had a, before my eyes opened, like the minute my brain turned on and I was conscious when I woke up, before my eyes even opened, I had a splitting headache. And I knew from that moment that it was just going to be a miserable day. And um, I have ASL, American Sign Language, first thing in the morning. Went through my lecture and even my teacher commented, you know, she had to sign to me, but she was like, are you feeling okay? And I was like, I did the sign for, for sick, which I'm doing right now in the video. But um, uh, yeah, I felt awful. And, uh, you know, if you've taken any sort of language class, you have the lecture and the lab usually. And I just told her, yeah, I'm not going to lab. I'm going to sleep. So I did. I slept for a couple hours, had to do some interviews for work and um, facilitate some interviews for work and uh, went back to bed. I slept for like two hours in the evening and uh, didn't end up seeing my girlfriend that night who I was supposed to have dinner with. And I think I went back to bed about 8, 8 p.m. and slept for maybe till like 2.30 or 3, was up for an hour, went back to bed and then woke up at noon the next day. So um, that was awful. But as soon as I woke up at that time, I felt pretty good. So um, if you're about to... I, every time someone... Everybody has said when you get round two, like, oh, prepare to be sick. You better call into work. You better clear your schedule, man. It's really a doozy. I always, I always assume that people are just weak. <laughs> and so leading up to it, I was like, I'm going to be fine. And uh, lo and behold, that didn't work out well for me. Um, so yeah, it ended up uh, throwing me for a loop, but that's okay. I feel better now. Um and what else went well? I had a, this week was actually pretty challenging, I would say for most of the week. And it all fucking started off with, I got a, a psych assignment back for my psych class. It's a research methods class. And it was a very difficult assignment. It took a very long time. It was like a 20 page research proposal. And the whole thing was graded out of 20 points. And I ended up, I ended up getting a 17 out of 20, which is at 85%. Now that's not the end of the world. Um, I don't want to go into the whole details, but basically I hate this class. The teacher is incredibly disappointing to me. And I know we're working remotely and I don't pretend to know what's going on in people's lives. And maybe there's something going on in the personal life of this instructor. But I'll just say that out of all my instructors, as we've been working remotely, this person is by far the worst. And my gut sense is that it's not circumstantial. This is just who this person is. So um, not a good teacher. Um, so there's some other things I have a bone to pick with them about. So it's part personal, part, um, um, I guess disappointment in myself that I didn't get a better grade. Um, not the end of the world, but that really fucking pissed me off. And I knew I shouldn't have done it, but I checked my grades on Sunday night right before I went to bed. And I honestly had a difficult time sleeping because of it. I just thought about this teacher and how I don't like them. And, uh, it just gnawed at me, you know, and, uh, had a, had a horrible time sleeping, woke up on Monday and I just felt grumpy. <laughs> you know, I, my, I could just feel that my patience was short, you know, and it was just, uh, I didn't enjoy feeling that way. And even, I even commented to my girlfriend on Monday night when I ended up, when I ended up seeing her, I just said, today sucked. I just feel awful, you know? And I felt like even when we were like having dinner or like watching Jeopardy, which we've been doing. I just felt fucking grumpy and, uh, you know, Tuesday came around, had some math homework to do, worked 
And uh, when I woke up Wednesday morning feeling like shit, it was just like the icing on the cake, and I thought the whole week was fucking ruined. Thankfully, Thursday, I woke up, and I was complaining, I think I was complaining, um, with shooting. This one thing I want to do is this NRA marksmanship, right? It's this marksmanship qualification program. And yes, I do remember talking about this. The last time I attempted it, it didn't go well, because I tried to make it harder than the task was supposed to be. Um, the first task you're actually supposed to do is shoot at paper plate, these nine inch paper plates from a distance of 15 feet, uh, from a bench rest. Basically you're sitting and your arms are resting on a table. I, I still think that's too easy. So I don't want to speak against what I'm, what my ultimate point here is, but I still think that's too easy. So I skipped that. I, I immediately went to step two and you're supposed to shoot at nine inch paper plates from 15 feet, right? And you have to shoot these groupings that are within an, an inch and a half of the edges of the plates. So I think that's like a five, I don't want to embarrass myself with my math, but it's, it's within a five and a half inch radius, right? A diameter. That's what I meant. <laughs> a diameter, um, a five and a half inch diameter, uh, a spread five and a half inch spread. God damn it. That's what your shots need to be within. So I thought, Oh, 15 feet, super easy. Like I'm not going to shoot at 15 feet. I'm going to do it at 30 feet. So I, I went, and I put it at 30 feet and I was blaming the ammo. I was blaming my focus, but I didn't do well. And uh, so I told myself, that's what you get for making it too hard on yourself, right? And I was also equating it to exercise. Um, you're working out too hard and your body's just not ready for it. You th- your, your mind is way ahead of where your body or your skill is at and you're pushing yourself too hard. You can do it today, but you're gonna pay for it in the long run is what happens usually. So I got my hopes up. I went out to shoot this thing last week and it didn't fucking work. So I told myself this week, you're just going to do it by the book. You're going to focus. You're going to practice during the week. I dry fire at my place. I have a little target, you know, pasted up on the wall that I dry fire at. And I was like, you're going to get focused. You're going to be mindful and you're going to knock this thing out next week. And I did. Not only did I, I, I did so much better than the last time. Um, I actually have some of these plates here. I want to show them to you. Now, this may not, I don't know what this looks like to you. I don't know if this looks impressive, but I'm showing the plates here on the video. I'm just going to show you some of these. I'm not going to show you all of them, but these were shot at 15 feet. Maybe I'm putting my face in shadow. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know if you can see me or these plates, but I would say these are pretty good groupings. You know, that's not bad for a new shooter. I think that's pretty good. Hey, if you're like a qualified shooter, if you shoot a lot, give me your honest feedback. For a guy who's only been shooting about a half dozen times, shooting these groupings at, you know, 15 feet, I think that's pretty good. Anyway, are you getting the point? Don't break into my house. You don't want that, you don't want that spread in your chest, right? Um, anyway, probably shouldn't joke about shooting people at this time. We've had a lot of shooting tragedies. I, I have a note to talk about that stuff, so fuck it. Maybe we'll just get into that now. Um... Yeah, it's weird to be getting into shooting recreationally at a time where in the last couple of weeks we've had these two uh, mass shootings, right? In Colorado and Atlanta. <sighs> um, I'm wondering how much to go into the Atlanta stuff. Um, you know, basically the people who were targeted in that shooting were Asians. And, um, you know, as you know, dating someone who's Asian, it was something that we've been talking about for a long time and just about her level of safety or how she feels. You know, how does she feel about her level of safety going out? and she feels relatively safe. Um, but it's also happening in this constellation of, I mean, if you remember, I've talked about the reason she moved into the place that she's at is that there was a shooting at her building. 
And so, <laughs> I mean, obviously, as I, as we have talked about it, and as I have thought about it, it's strange to be getting into shooting, not just with the cultural stuff that's going on, but the fact that my girlfriend had a traumatizing event that involved a firearm. So it actually means that that's something that I actually have to keep far away from her. I mean, as far as she's concerned, it doesn't exist. You know, she hasn't seen it. She doesn't go, she doesn't go shooting with me. I don't even talk about it with her. It's something I just sort of pursue on my own in my private, uh, my private life. Almost like the French, someone said like in, in like the French, they have mistresses. A lot of the men just have like girlfriends when they're married. It's just understood. It's just never talked about. That's kind of like what shooting is to me. It's my mistress. Um, but yeah, and I've also talked about, you know, as I've sort of navigated, you know, I don't know, firearms culture and kind of hating most of it. And it's strange to me that even at a time like this, people just sort of jump to the defense of firearms, and especially like the AR-15 is a, is a weapon that, you know, people in the firearms community are very eager to defend because it's so maligned in the news and in culture. I mean, it's a very popular choice amongst mass shooters. Um, so anyway, where am I going with all this? I don't know. I, I, I guess in some ways, because I've talked about my, my own interest in firearms and shooting and the fact that I'm even showing you my goddamn plates that I shot. Um, and probably because I plan to continue talking about it. I feel like I had to say something and, um, yeah, I don't know what to say except It's awful. I mean, uh, maybe that's uh, me being Captain Obvious, but it's really tragic. And I have heard some people comment on it. Um, you know, I, I follow a couple channels where, you know, people are sort of firearms enthusiasts, and I happen to really like them, actually. But obviously, they have felt the need to comment on the shooting. And I think one thing that really gets diminished is, especially in the Atlanta, like this, these were, this was a hate crime. You know, this is someone who sought out you know, people who are Asian to shoot them. And, um, you know, it's just really sad. And, um, I don't know, the race motivation aspect, I think just gets played down even in the, you know, even for people who, um, I mean, I think most people condemn the shooting. I don't think anyone would publicly uh, defend them or celebrate them, but I feel like the race motivation actually gets, um, played down a lot. And it actually brought something up with me and my girlfriend, this is going to sound like it's not related, but, and maybe it's not fully, but it's come up in my own life recently, which is the, the pronunciation of Asian names. And there's a common practice for people who immigrate to this country, um, who have names that are just, you know, famously difficult for Anglo people to pronounce is that they'll adopt an American name. So, you know, maybe they have a Vietnamese name, but you know, it's just an intimidating sequence of letters for white people to say. Um, and, uh, it's come up for me a couple times in my life, especially as someone who has to facilitate interviews. And I, I interview people from all types of backgrounds is I'll see a discrepancy sometimes between the application that somebody submits and when they schedule an interview, the name they provide. And I always usually, I mean, I, I trust people's judgment. Like people can choose whatever name they want and I don't really want to dissect it with folks. But if there's good rapport and because I want them to understand like the type of organization that they're applying to enter, you know, sometimes I'll ask them if they'd prefer to use, you know, the name that they use on their application. If they say no, that's fine. I'm not going to pursue the issue, but I'd like to let them know that that's, if if that's something they want to do, I don't want them to accommodate, to feel the need to accommodate me or to accommodate us, you know, that they can 
sort of come as who they actually are and, and we'll do our best to support them with that. Um, I did have at one time, I can't talk about the work that I do necessarily, but I did have this one experience, um, you know, as a musician, as someone who sort of publishes their own music and as someone who wants to receive their publishing royalties on their music, you know, you have to set up an LLC, you know, for, uh, when you sign up for ASCAP or something, you have to have a publishing company to, um, send those royalties to. So you, you form an LLC and I don't know that it's serving me that well anymore, but uh, at the time I thought I had to open up a business checking account. Right. And so the name of my publishing company is uh, monomyth music LLC. And I opened up a checking account at bank of America and the person, uh, who helped me out was a Vietnamese man. And on his business cards, his name was Bin B I N H. And I don't remember what Anglo name he used, but on his name tag, it said Dan. And I commented on it. Uh, He had like his supervisor kind of over his shoulder. So maybe it was just like not the right time to do it. But I did ask him. He said, oh, uh, my name's Dan. I said, oh, your business card say Ben. And he was like, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. And I was like, oh, would you like me to call you Ben? And he was like, no, you can just, you, you, you can just call me Dan. And I was like, okay. Um, that's a, I don't know. That's a weird place to be put in. Right. Because on the one hand, you want to tell people like, hey, you don't need to Anglicanize. That's the right word for it. You don't need to Anglicanize your name for me. Um, but I also understand, and I, uh, this is why it came up with my girlfriend, as she was talking about the pronunciation of Bon Me. You know, Americans, and I'm still, I know I'm still fucking it up when I say it, but bon, I think it's like Bong Me, Bong Me, but we say Bon Me. And, um, you know, it just, she notices that. That's something that uh, that uh, Westerners just don't pronounce correctly. Um, and it's weird for her as someone who kind of like doesn't like hearing that m- mispronounced. It just, it puts you in a weird place. Do you know what I'm saying? Are you feeling as weird as I'm feeling? I mean, the, I'm even talking about it. And I feel strange. It's weird, right? Who wants to hear a white dude talking about this stuff? But, um... Although I will say, and this is the part where, you, where people want to frame you as a white supremacist, but I think what me and my girlfriend were talking about is what, what, what motivates that? You know, it, it, you know, someone's, I think a lot of times this does, stuff gets framed like if you can't pronounce, if you don't have correct pronunciation for, you know, someone who's from another country, if you can't pronounce their food or you can't pronounce their name, that you're somehow a bigot. And I, I tried to point my girlfriend to this video that um, I saw, which was French people trying to pronounce American words. And because, like English people speaking French, you know, there are sounds and consonants and things. Like, I'm watching, um, sorry, I have something in my nose here. I have, um, I said I've been watching SF Opera's broadcast. And I'm burping, dude. Your boy's falling apart. I'm burnt. I'm burping. I feel like the skin on my nose is dry. Dude, I'm falling apart. I told you I've been watching SF Opera. They've been broadcasting The Ring Cycle, right? Wagner's Der Ring des Nibelungen. And uh, I'm about halfway through the, the broadcast of the, of the final opera in the series, Go to Damero, The Twilight of the Gods. I actually have to hurry up and finish this because it stops. <laughs> it stops streaming at midnight, so I have to like wrap this up and and get get these materials online so I have time to finish watching it before they take it offline. But... You know, if you ever try to read German, you know, there are weird, there's the weird B that actually sounds like an S or an S. And when you're reading along with the German, you know, you think something's pronounced a certain way and it's not, right? There's all sorts of voc- vocalizations or 
uh, guttural sounds or rollings of rolling of R's or whatever it is in German that American people just don't know how to pronounce. The same is true of French. The same is true of Vietnamese. Uh, there's a lot of counterintuitive pronunciations. And the thing that I sort of mocked her into a corner with was Icelandic. <laughs> you know, there was a long time where my girlfriend was planning this trip to Iceland for us and she had it all planned out and she couldn't pronounce any of the names. And I was like, does that make you a bigot? Cause you, and this is where the Icelandic people are going to crucify me, but everything is pronounced like you know, does it make you a bigot because you can't pronounce that? No. Now, Here's what she's really getting at, and this is the important part. That instance of somebody repeatedly mispronouncing your name or having feeling that you know your name is so uh, insurmountable for Westerners that you need to change your name is just one example of what you feel throughout your entire life, right? Marginalization or uh, you know being put in a small corner and having to accommodate yourself to the greater culture, right? Um, and that's awful. And then you have something like this, like this recent shooting that just, you know, reminds you that for some people, you're a target demographic. Um, yeah, it's fucking awful. I don't know. And I don't know, maybe as a white dude who uh, now owns a gun, I feel kind of a need to apologize for that. Or maybe not apologize is the right word, but I, I don't know. I feel the need to say something about it. Um So yeah, I don't know. Maybe you have something you want to say about it. Maybe you can leave a comment on this video. Maybe you vehemently disagree with me. Maybe I said something that pissed you off. Or, um, you know, maybe you have something you want me to think about. If you leave something thoughtful, I'll comment on it. But uh, um, there's, I think there's a certain lane of, of commentary that I'm not going to respond to. And I think you know what it is. So uh, you can, uh, fu- if, if that's your lane, you can fuck off forever. But uh, if you actually want to engage in a conversation, we can do that. Um, what did I really want to talk about today, though? <laughs> I don't know. I paid my taxes. I think I was, you know, it's so funny when you, when you sit down to do, to do this thing. I thought, man, today's going to be really easy. There's so much good stuff going on. I'm going to talk about my hike. I'm going to talk about shoot, how well my shooting went. I'm going to talk about this. I'm going to talk about that. And uh, I've kind of blown through most of the stuff. And uh, we're barely even halfway through the episode, so... Um, I did think of one thing. I was, uh, gloating, uh, let's see, probably a couple months ago, actually, at this point, about, um, in and of itself, um, the magic slash performance arts art piece that was on, uh, Hulu. So if you haven't seen in and of itself, I'm not going to go into that again. You can actually find the episode called in and of itself. You can find that episode here on the podcast and listen to me gush about that show and hear all about that. The thing that came up is I had forgotten, you know, I was, I, I was at work and, you know, I'm telecommuting to work like everybody else. And, uh, I saw one of my coworkers who I don't normally correspond with, who, uh, me and him just sort of get along. And so I sent him a private, private message. I saw he was on and I just said, Hey man, hope you're doing well. And he asked me, Hey, have you seen anything cool recently? And I said, not really, but I, I did see this special in and of itself. And as I told him about it, I just sort of Googled it again. And I noticed, and I had forgotten that it was directed by Frank Oz. Um, I don't need to tell you who Frank Oz is. Frank Oznowicz, you can Google him. He also, I think he directed Labyrinth as well. Very formative movie from my childhood. But the thing that comes up for me with Frank Oz, and this feels kind of like a weird story to tell, but um, this is just where my mind went. But, um, you know, I mentioned... Uh, and have mentioned that I went to a performing arts boarding school for my freshman year of high school. 
Um, and this was a place that I had gone. I had spent three summers there as well. They're, they're probably more known and more famous as a, as a performing arts summer camp where people uh, go to every summer, uh, every summer, like thousands of people go there. Um, and during the year, it's a, it's a boarding school with a much smaller student body. And I had spent like three summers there. And my first summer at this place, um, in the cabin next to me, uh, was the son of Frank Oz. Um, I'm wondering if I should or should not say his name, actually given what this story is about. But the point is, is that we'll call him, we'll call him C. <laughs> his son C was next in, in the cabin next to me. And very cool kid, I remember. I think at that time, you know, I think like a lot of people in the late 90s, I had the sort of skater haircut, like parted down the center and just like long, probably almost to my uh, chin or whatever. And uh, everyone, like everybody looked like uh, Jonathan Taylor Thomas or fucking, uh, is it Brad Renfro? Is that who I'm thinking of? Um, everybody had that kind of like skater cut, I think is what they even called it. And, uh, but he was like that. Like he was just like a cool fucking kid, I remember. Um, like there were some kids when you were growing up just had like swagger. You know, like even now looking back, like I know that he was a kid, but he just seemed like more mature. You know, he was just cooler than a lot of us. I don't know if he had more testosterone flowing through his veins, but he was just a cool kid. But he lived under the shadow of the fact that he was Frank Osnowich's son. And I don't know why that was obvious to me, but it just was. I, I, I And it's insane to me to think that, especially as a young child, that that would have had so much currency with other kids my age. Because even though we may know the content that he was involved with, right, or be big fans of his work, it's not like the name Frank Oz inspired awe in people who heard it, right? Like when you're a kid, you're just not dialed into that thing. But um, it really weighed on him, and I think it was something that so many of his peers just wouldn't let go. And I remember at this summer camp, um, it was broken into like two, four week terms and you either went for four weeks or you went for two, four week sessions or whatever. But I remember toward the end of the first four weeks, I think like a week early, like sometimes people's parents come and visit them. And Frank Oz came to visit his son. And I was never close to the guy, but I do remember him. I had this memory of standing in front of my cabin, you know, C's cabin is right next to ours. And I remember seeing him with his son from a distance of probably like 30, 40 feet. And I remember him just sort of standing, looking down in the sun and, and his son just kind of had his head down a little bit. And he's like patting his son's head, just kind of consoling him. And I remember them turning to sort of walk toward the cafeteria and he just has his, you know, his hand on his son's upper back, just kind of cons- giving him like a consoling rub as they sort of walk and see his head is just kind of down. And he left after that, you know, his dad took him home. He left summer camp early. And I just thought, I don't, that always stuck with me for some reason. There's very, I had this very poignant memory of that kid. Um, and so I don't know what to say about it, except that that kid's probably in his mid thirties as well. And that's just how I remember it. You know, this, and I, I guess I just wonder how that has affected him throughout his life. You know, I also think, I, I guess, what, what does it really mean to me? I think, um, you know, as I was seeing that credit for in and of itself, and I was, you know, when I saw this performance, I said, you know, I believe in and of itself, 
you know, I talk about getting hit with the spear. I mean, there is something deep and profound in that work. And I'm not saying it means a lot to other people, but when I think of, you know, the canon or timeline or whatever you want to call it of works, music, theater, film, um, every creative thing I've ever come into contact with that has had a formative influence on me, I see it like a chain. You know, it's like these hands that are connected through history that go back into time to, I mean, even as far back as like the Iliad and the Odyssey and the I Ching and I mean, time immemorial. I mean, when you think about like the novel Cloud Atlas or that movie, that's kind of what they're talking about, right? There's the, there's a, uh, you know, a cycle of time and it's like, who, who are you and where, where do you stand in the struggle? And it's like, what role do you play in the, in the tide of events? And there's no telling what you do in, in, in your life that will ripple through time and affect other people. And you feel yourself connected to this history, right? And for, for me very personally, it, you may watch it and think it's a piece of shit, but I'm telling you, for me personally, in and of itself is a, is a very special piece in that puzzle, you know? And the fact that someone that, you know, by, you know, two degrees or three degrees of separation was involved with that creative project, I think it, it, it kind of like touches on something that I feel and I kind of lament about and uh, maybe you don't want to hear about, frankly, but it makes me feel like I have these moments in my life where I feel like I was close to someone else's glory. And I, th- I think now that I look back, I feel like, like I missed something, you know, like I just found out, I've talked about this dude, John Bellion, who, John Bellion, who you may know, um, just through some weird twist of fate and whatever, I had the chance to open up for him uh, in San Francisco one time and had the opportunity to do it again when things were a little bit bigger. And at that point, he just took off. You know, he was playing, his next tour was like an arena tour. It was fucking crazy. And uh, that connection just like disappeared. And I just found out that he co-wrote half of Justin Bieber's most recent record. He had already had some like impressive co-writing credits like Rihanna and Eminem. And he's done a bunch of cool stuff. And, but it's like, I have these moments of like getting close to greatness or like brushing shoulders with like great people. Uh, I mean, the Matt Nathans tour, something I talk about a lot, um, was a big part of that, right? Like, oh man, here it is. I'm getting closer to something. Um, and not just that, all, all the times I've opened up for like cool artists and I've always thought like, ooh, this is me like getting closer to, or even sitting across from like these people and thinking like, oh, I'm like you. Finally, I've met someone who's like me and you've been successful. So I like drank that in as like, oh, like this says something about me. The fact that I'm sitting across from you and I see so much of myself in you, like this is validating every um, grandiose thought I've ever had about myself of who I am and what I'm destined for and what I'm able to accomplish, right? Um, And now that my life is in a very different place and is in a very different trajectory, I feel like I miss something. You know, like there was something I was supposed to do with these opportunities. And I know it sounds crazy to be talking about this in the context of Frey Cause, because that, that's not what I'm, that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm just saying, remembering this reminded me of how I have felt at other times in my life. But it's like, is it, um, 
is it Job? Who wrestles with the angel Gabriel? What's that phrase? This is like, I will not let you go unless thou bless me or something like that. But there, it, it feels like I should have, should I have done more? You know, should I have, I mean, I look back and I, I, I always worry that I bothered people. You know, like I asked Matt Nathanson like half a dozen times if I could open for him before the, the answer was yes. And every time I did, I thought I was bothering this dude. And I'm trying to actually, I'm going to try to compare two things. There was a comedian, Tom Segura, who you may be familiar with. And I have heard him in conversation with other successful comedians talking about, you know, people who used to ask them to open for them or at, would ask to like do a guest spot on their shows or, or something like that. They always th- saw them as like kind of pariahs. There was something about them asking for that opportunity that was anathema to like whatever they were doing. And they were proud of the fact that they said, I never asked for anything. I never asked to open for somebody. You know, they're, they always act as if like they just knew that when they were ready, those things would happen to them. And that sounds fucking rad. But when I look back on, you know, the creative work that I did, everything that ever happened to me that was cool (laughs) or that was a a progression for me was something that I asked for and usually had to pursue, not just ask for, but had to follow up on multiple times. And... I don't know. I feel conflicted because on on the one hand, I, I, I guess I'm at this place in my life now too. And, and there's other areas of my life that actually I haven't even talked about on this podcast that have been sort of weighing on me. Maybe at some point in the future, we'll talk about it. But, you know, it's just hard for me to ask for what I need in life. And part of it has to do with how I was raised and shit I'll talk about in therapy or whatever. But it's very hard for me to ask for what I want or what I need you know, or if I have needs to just sort of ask that someone meet them, because I feel like I'm asking some Herculean uh, uh, thing of them, or that it's good, that, you know, for them, it's going to be a huge fucking bummer and a burden. And even if I get my needs met, I'm going to be, uh, you know, it'll be, uh, it'll be to placate me, right? And I'll feel fundamentally guilty, you know, that, yeah, they'll do what I ask, but on, on some level, it's going to be a deep, it's going to be a big fucking bummer for them. Um, And and this is probably just one reason why your parents are so important, but that really like sets the tone for your interactions with everybody, you know? And as I go through my life, I parentalize people all the time. You know, when I, <laughs> I'm embarrassed if any of these people would ever hear it, but when you like, when you work with someone or get the opportunity, opportunity to work with someone who's more successful than you, you parentalize them in a way. I mean, you obviously idolize them. You look up to them. They're doing things that you want to emulate. And that's kind of, the microcosm of a parental relationship. I mean, there's the cliche that we always hear about is, oh, that person was looking for a, for a father figure. Like that artist was so easily manipulated and, uh, and taken advantage of by their manager because they were looking for a father figure. And we say that and we kind of know what we're talking about. But I think as I've gotten older, I've just been more sympathetic to that. You know, I mean, it's always sort of talked about as if it's a sad thing, but what does that really mean? I mean, you're looking for someone to tell you, one, you're looking for someone whose actions you can emulate, right? Someone successful, someone who seems to have things figured out. That's who you want to be. And you're also looking for someone to tell you that you're doing it right, (laughs) that what you're doing is correct. You know, and I think I've always 
like gravitated toward people and kind of wanted them to like, I've, I've wanted a mentor, you know, I've wanted somebody to take me under their wing. And, um, on the one hand, I've kind of known that I've needed that. And I would like to think on some level, everyone who is successful has had that at some point, whether they acknowledge it or not, they have had that, you know, they've had a mentor, whether it's a, someone like immediately related to their professional life or they just have like a good relationship with their, their parents. You know, they have someone encouraging them. They have someone telling them that they're doing a good job. Um, so anyway, I don't know where I'm going with all that. Um, because I guess I, I have also said out of one side of my mouth that I also think people who are very successful are, you know, we, there's a lot of commonality between successful people, which is their, it's all, you, you almost feel like they've never had that because on some level, you know, people who are incredibly successful, there are, it's not uncommon for them to have this deep hole in themselves that will never be filled. And the reason that they persist and the reason that they're successful is because nothing else in life they've they've idolatrized idolized (laughs) they've made an idol of this idea of success and nothing else in their life will ever make them full except for that and of course there are many people who feel that way who are not successful and we never hear from them but me but you know i do think sometimes that like being deeply flawed is like a necessary condition of being successful in the entertainment field a certain type of success may i should word it that way I do whether whether it's true or not there's a part of me that believes that to be successful to atta- to obtain a certain kind of success in the entertainment field you have to be deeply flawed in a very specific way <laughs> you have to be very capable you ha- you have to be deeply flawed in one very specific way and overcompensate so far in the other direction that you have this ability to be successful in a very specific way does that make sense Anyway, there's a lot of assumptions there, but I do think that sometimes. <sighs> Damn, dude, I, I don't want to get all like sad about it, but I feel like I've always like been looking for a family. You know, I I, I completely forgot about this. I, I mean, I, for years, I was a big fan of the Adam Carolla podcast. And I told myself, like, you know, I always had like little projects for myself, like in in a, in a way, like shooting is one of them. I've just decided now, like, hey, I'm going to be a good shooter. And so I've set a curriculum for myself. I would do that with creative projects, like, hey, I'm going to play that venue. And so it was like, you know, I'd have this short term project, like, who do I need to know? Who do I need to email? What do I have to do to, to get there? Right. Or um uh, a lot of those things. And one of them was like, I'm going to get on the Adam Carolla show, the number one daily download podcast. I'm going to get on it. And there was a lot of things that just sort of happened that made that probably even made that feel like a possibility. But like, there's a big fan of the podcast named Giovanni and he has a podcast. I did his podcast like three times. Um, how did I get connected with Chris Loxamana? But Chris Loxamana is like one of the personalities, like Howard Stern has a constellation of people Around him, Adam Carolla has the same thing. Chris Loxamana is a dude who works on his show. I did his podcast. Uh, Dawson is the dude who's like the sound engineer for the podcast. He has a podcast called Front of House, which I've done twice. And it was like, I was like working my way towards whatever. I ended up, 
one time when I did Chris Chris Loxamana's podcast, we were in Los Angeles, right? I went, I was there doing the podcast, and afterwards we went to this place called Genghis Cohen to do an open mic. You know, he, I was like, "Hey, man, I'm doing this open mic. You want to come?" So he came. So I've had his number. I probably still have it. But I remember last time Adam Carolla was in town, I texted him. You know, and I saw him at the venue. And uh, last time I was uh, in the LA area on the Matt Nathan's tour, I did Dawson's podcast and. Like, that's fucking rad, you know? Like, that's an accomplishment. I mean, I've been in the Adam Carolla studio, like, to do Chris Loxamana's podcast. For, for, for me, you know, maybe for you it doesn't sound cool, but for me to be standing in a place that had kind of lived in your mind for a long time, to have done something or done the work to be standing there, you don't really appreciate it at the time. You know, I think part of it is because I'm... I'm just kind of in the moment. I'm kind of performing, you know. My mind is sort of compartmentalized that way. I don't really realize how cool it is. But I think back on that and I go, I completely forgot about that. And I, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's been a hindrance to me. I think if I, if I was able, I guess sometimes I, I, I wish if I, if I was able to let those successes in, instead of diminishing them and kind of like brushing them aside because they're not good enough, they're not what I'm really going for. If I could just let those actually enter me and fuel me, it might give me more momentum. You know, because if I let myself enjoy the rewards of what I've done, that is something tangible to look back on. The next time it gets difficult, I can remind myself of what it feels like to succeed. I mean, a microcosm of that would be like working out recently. You know, I've talked about the difference between the David Goggins, which is like, you're a piece of shit and you suck and you need to break yourself down and fuck you, you're a pussy and run more and uh, pain is weakness leaving the body and, you know, versus like when I work out now, it's like, hey man, yeah, you're doing good. Like I'm encouraging to myself. That feels more sustainable. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I feel like I'm jumping around a lot here. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if uh, what I'm saying is linking up. Um, but maybe just to think simply again, so I can get back on some kind of track here, whether it's true or not, I have had this feeling as I go through my life that I have like brushed shoulders or stood at a distance from like greatness or successful people. And maybe we all feel this way, you know, anybody who spent some time pursuing something, Maybe it's just inevitable inevitable that you brush shoulders with with uh, people who are more successful than yourself. But you know, the time you think, "Oh man, I'm making progress." Like some of this magic is going to rub up, rub off on me. And um, it was always like I could go so far, and then I would feel the door close. You know, uh, like when I opened for John Billion, I remember being the second time I opened up for him, being backstage at Slim's. Um, he had a very, I mean, you know, the, the, the person who found him also found logic. Who's a very famous rapper. Um, so he like gave me his manager's email and was like, yeah, dude, next time we do this tour, you'll do a a bunch of shows with like, you do a whole leg of the tour with us, man. Just email my manager and like emailing that dude over and over again. And it's like, I think at one point that dude blocked me, (laughs) you know, I got a return response. Like you've been, you know, I don't know if it said you've been blocked, but you know, it felt like I, it's like, I felt that door slam in my face. Like, okay, this is never going to fucking happen. And, um, you know, I have felt that socially too, you know, swimming, swimming around people who are more successful. It's like, I wanted to be friends with people. 
And one thing my therapist said, and I, I try to remember this, is, you know, the other people that you're, I'm, I'm putting words in their mouth here, but it was something like, you know, the other people that you're with may not look at you that way. Like, they may not be looking for friends. Like, for, like they very well could just look at you as competition. And when they said that, I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, dude. Of course. And at the same time, obviously, I don't have the success to point to 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 really validate this, but that also feels so short-sighted. You know, I was always looking like for my peeps. You know, I was looking for a community of people I could fall in with or friends that I could make who you could build sort of lasting relationships with. I mean, I, I guess on some level, everyone's competition, but why? I don't know, the idea that we just have to like step on each other's necks to be successful or if I got a cool gig that, you know, I mean, I guess literally it does take something away from you, but were you really in line for it anyway? I guess I've just always felt like everybody can kind of fall in somewhere, but I don't, I don't fucking know. Um, I'm trying not to, uh, I feel like as I'm saying this, I'm sort of building myself up and making myself sound like a good guy when everyone else is awful. And that's, that's not really what I'm trying to say. I actually was, (laughs) I was trying to be self-deprecating when I started this conversation. Um, I was trying to articulate the ways in which I think I'm self-limiting or self-defeating. I mean, I think one, why, why do I feel like I'm making this up? Maybe I've just fantasized about this conversation so many times like that I feel, like that, like this happened, and maybe it didn't. But I do feel like I asked Matt Nathanson one time, like, "Hey, dude, did I bother you?" <laughs> and I hear him saying, "No," you know. And whether that happened in person or over email, I don't know. Or maybe this is some fantasy that I've concocted in my head. But I've thought about that. You know, I've said, you know, it's a weird thing to talk about. But as I look back on my life, I feel like I had, you know, if we're just thinking about like romantically. I had way more opportunities in my life than I ever allowed myself to see, you know, because of where I was at, you know, I felt so insecure or it just never dawned on me because of where my self-esteem was at, that people would be interested in me. And yet I look back on my life and I think, you know, not that I was a Don Juan or that I could have been with anyone I wanted to, but you know, there were people all around me who would have been interested in me. It's just like, there was a sign over my head that said closed for business and even though I've operated, whether it's creatively or whatever, I've operated in a way that feels comfortable for me, or I feel like I've done, I've done the best I can. Are there things about me just by the nature of who I am that, that, that means that I wasn't available in a way I, if I had been, if I had been more evolved, if I had been, I don't know, more developed as a person, would I have accomplished more? My therapist is adamant that that's not true, that I did everything I could. And um, objectively, (laughs) this is why people think therapy is like rent a friend or like rent a cheerleader, you know, even though I had the talent, the requisite talent to be successful, nobody's successful in the arts. There's just too many people who want to do it and there's not enough spots. And the vast majority of people who aspire to a creative career are not successful. That's just the way it is. But 
but this is the this is the drama that I'm constantly roped into. Jesus Christ. As I'm saying this, I realize we've We've talked about this on the podcast a thousand fucking times. There's, this is why this podcast is like therapy. You find yourself in the middle of a conversation that you've had 500 times, like like it's the first time, and you realize, oh, we've had this conversation before, haven't we? It's like the dude from Memento. You know? It's like you have these deep insights, but then your brain shakes like an Etch-A-Sketch and you fucking forget everything. And you have these epiphanies over and over again, like they're profound new insights, when you've already known this stuff. You know, I've gone back and listened to songs that I wrote 15 years ago, and I speak with such clarity about an issue I think I'm just getting some insight about. And I go, motherfucker, you wrote a whole song about this 15 years ago. I've, I've said this in therapy too, and maybe I've said it here. It's a wonder that we accomplish anything as a species because the learning curve in life is so great. You know, if you're young, you may not understand this, but if you're even middle-aged... You know, no matter how old you get, you feel like a, a child. You know, no matter how much you learn, you, you, you always encounter something that demonstrates to you very clearly how much you still have to learn about the most fundamental aspects of life and yourself. You know, you look toward a time where you can be this wise elder and like, you know, we look at energy, every, every young generation too like thinks they have everything figured out and they look at older people like they're fucking stupid who like like people who who had this whole life and they squandered their opportunity and but they have such a head start because they live in the you know they are the inheritors of the future and they have all this time ahead of them and look how much smarter they are than the the people who are older than them and they're the ones who are going to change the world you don't know shit you don't know shit because i don't know shit and I don't just mean me, I mean all of us. Like, we don't know shit. It really is a never-ending story. Because I have nothing to teach you, and you definitely don't have anything to teach me. It's why we live the same drama over and over and over again. Because by the time you do learn something about you, your time is over. And the young people don't even listen to you. Like, what's the phrase, youth is wasted on the young? Actually, <laughs> this reminds me. My brother turned me on to this fucking cool, sh cool show on Apple TV called Ted Lazo. Um, maybe you're fully aware of it. I don't need to. I don't need to turn you on to it. But you should check it out. If you don't, have, you can do it like a free trial on Amazon or um, on uh, Apple TV. And uh, Apple TV Plus, I think, is what they're calling it. But it's a great show called Ted Lazo. And uh, the most recent episode I saw, someone brings this up. You know, they bring up this phrase: "Youth is wasted on the young." Um. And then he turns it around and says, don't, what did he say? Don't let wisdom be wasted on the old or some, some bullshit like that. He was just saying the, don't make the mistake of doing the reciprocal thing. Like don't let the wisdom that you earn in old age be wasted on you either. You know, you have to exercise some beneficence when you're dealing with young people. You know, there's an older character who's really censorious, if that's the right word, of a, of a younger character who hates him, judges him, and gives him a hard time for being who he is. And he points out, he says, what were you like when you were that age? And he's like, I was exactly the same. And he goes, so there you go. You know, youth is wasted on the young, but, you know, don't let the wisdom of old age be wasted on you also, or something like that. And um, 
I mean, it's weird too, as an adult, like younger people think that you're dumb, but they don't realize how much patience you're exercising with them. That when you look at them, you see them making all the very, uh, like a peacock flaunting, flaunting their confidence, knowing that they are actually walking and making the exact same mistakes that you made at their age. And they have no fucking clue what you're like. I had this, this, I felt this very clearly when I was like 30 years old and I was like going to bars and like trying to meet people is, um, you would see younger people sometimes out in public who were just kind of embarrassing themselves. You know, they were, it almost reminded me of like young girls at a, at a school cafeteria or something where they're cackling and laughing, but it's all kind of for the boys around them. You know, this is just, this is how we interact as, you know, burgeoning sexual or romantic beings, right? Like young people do this. They sort of, they think they're communicating with each other, but really they're just broadcasting themselves to the room that they're in. And when you're older, you just think, God, that person fucking sucks, but they think they're really fucking cool. It's like those people who like take the, like people who have like the ape hanger, uh, motorcycles and they're just loud as shit. And everyone hears them coming from like a mile away. Like they'll go by a bunch of people like dining outside and they'll just sort of rev their engine and they think they're being really fucking cool. But every single person who's sitting there was like, what a fucking dildo. Nobody's thinking, hey, wow, I wish I could fucking catch that guy and, and, and fucking, uh, you know, get a little bit more of him. Like, that guy's fucking cool. They think you're a dildo. That's like, <laughs> that's what being young in the world is like, is you think everyone wants to be you. And on some level, old people do envy your youth and your time right? And maybe even your body, like they want to be young again or something like that. But they wish they could take the wisdom they have earned into that body as well. You know, nobody would fucking just go back to being 18 or in their early 20s and relive that shit because you're lost. You know, you have no idea what's going on. I mean, I've yet to, I mean, I, there are a cer- there's a certain lane of people who do like romanticize high school as if it was the best years of their life and but that's like in a deficit way they romanticize that period you know they felt successful maybe they were c- celebrated maybe they were star athletes and so in some ways that was the best time of their life but because it was so ephemeral maybe they haven't grasped how you know life has this sounds crazy, but there is a part of me that feels like in some ways life is structured to teach you something. You know, it takes things away from you to sort of force you to, or to ask you to improve parts of yourself to make up for it, to, to get at the real value. You know, as a bald dude, if you're watching the video, I'm not only a lot, I'm not only red as fuck, but I'm bald. You know, the co- or even like gaining weight or whatever, like your body changes, your metabolism slows down, your your face wrinkles, your hair is taken away from you. Um, at best, you know, maybe you I get sick, whatever it is, your knee needs to be replaced or whatever the fuck it is, right? It's like life takes things away from you and asks you to still be happy. You know, find happiness. Let me take that away. Now find happiness. Let me take that away. Now find happiness. It's almost, it almost feels like it's steering you toward spiritual development, right? Let me take away the things that the world values to help you find real happiness, you know? (laughs) And spoiler alert, it, it was right alongside you this whole time.
man. Like every romantic comedy, it's like, they went on a journey to realize that home, or whatever the fuck it is, they went on a journey to realize home was the end of the destination. They went on a journey to find happiness, only to find that happiness was already at home. That's what it is. This summer, M is The Hobbit. There and back again. Anyway, <laughs> two thoughts. I started reading Brothers Karamazov uh, almost by accident. I was reading Pushkin's Little Tragedies, which are fine, I guess. Actually, I, I heard someone talking about the movie Amadeus recently. As about, like, oh, that's like their favorite film of all time. And I, I, it's a really good movie. Like, I think if you haven't seen Amadeus, you should, wa- you should watch it. And you'll be like, oh, shit, this movie is really fucking good. But I hadn't realized that it was actually this idea of the, this feud between Mozart and Salieri was based on Pushkin's little tragedy, this little play that he had, he had written, uh, which was interesting. Um, but the, the version of the little tragedies that I have, I think there's four or five of them. They're all these sort of little interesting kind of tragic vignettes that are written as if they are to be performed. I don't know if they're, the way they're written, they're hard to actually act out. I think they're probably like, I mean, there's this debate, is Shakespeare literature or is, or is he an actual playwright or are some of his best plays actually written to be performed or to exist on the page? I enjoy them more as like literature, like on the page, but, um, there's something about that with these the, the little tragedies by Pushkin as well. But there's also like, you know, the, the tragedies are very short, but there's a lot of other writing, which is like the, the translator, the translator's commentary on each play. And I was like, I started reading that stuff. I was just like, fucking boring, boring. And I said, fuck it. I'm not even going to read the rest of these. I mean, I read the tragedies themselves, but I'm not going to read this person's commentary on them because I just, I, there's, there's a certain type of like academic self-aggrandizing type of analysis writing that I just, um, I can't stomach anymore. But anyway, I, I don't know why I'm saying that as much as I, I think I, I just started reading, reading, uh, Brothers Karamazov, like, it was next on the list of things to read by Dostoevsky. And, uh, I don't know, I wasn't, wasn't really, like, didn't know I was going to start reading it. I just think I just, um, picked it up out of being frustrated with what I was reading from Pushkin. Um, and uh why did I bring that up? I don't know. Um I I I I I want you to think that I'm smart and I I I I read important books. Um What else have I been doing? I've been listening to a lot of Bela Bartok, classical composer. But uh I think the thing I wanted to say and I wanted to probably end on this cuz I'm looking at the time and uh you know, I've made a big big to-do about me needing to go like an hour and five, hour and ten or whatever, but I, I, I think I'm just going to start stopping when I'm done, and I'm feeling myself ending here. But I was laughing because I've mentioned that I'm in this group chat with my friends, and normally it's like, I talk about it as if it's the bane of my existence. I don't have a problem with it, really. I just don't really participate. I'm just sort of a, a passive observer. But somebody shared this beer that was like from some brewery and it said Ken Burns Presents. And I just sort of laughed to myself because, you know, we assume things about creative people, which is like if, if someone's a brilliant creative person, we assume that they're just like brilliant, like they have something figured out that most of us don't. 
but maybe and actually maybe this goes back to back to what I'm talking about about you know people are successful in a very narrow like creative people are successful because they are very adept in this one very specific way but they could have glaring deficits in other aspects of their life and I don't I actually I don't mind talking about people's physical appearance but I know that that rubs people the wrong way so I'm sorry to be uh lookist if that's the word um but Ken Burns has the craziest fucking hairpiece I've ever seen in my fucking life. If you ever see a Google image Ken Burns and tell me if that dude doesn't have the face of an 80-year-old with the hair of a freshly combed Ken Barbie doll. The fact that anyone could put that hairpiece on, look in the mirror and say, I'm going to go out looking like this, betrays that they are severely lacking in self-awareness like as a bald dude i understand that some people feel self-conscious about losing their hair but as a dude who's never done anything about it i've never used rogaine i've you know i'm not i'm I'm, i should have shaved my head a long fucking time ago so you know i admit i looked in the mirror and didn't realize how fucking sad my hair was for a while but i also had no problem fucking shaving it when i did that some people experience baldness as so loathsome that they think they look better walking around with fucking doll hair on their head is insane to me. Because the fact that you have crow's feet and your hair is jet black and it looks like like fucking Barbie hair is crazy. It means you like you don't know how you look, you know? Anyway, not the nicest thing in the world to end on. But that's what we're going to do. So thank you for listening to the podcast. You know, I know I we went kind of deep there, but actually, it's been a pretty good week. Life is good, and uh, uh, I'm on spring break. I'm on spring break, man. So I'm actually looking for something to do. I have some schoolwork I need to do. Actually, calculus is fucking hard, man. I gotta review some calculus. And actually, for ASL, I have to learn a story. It's just like a you know, I have to tell this story in ASL. It's kind of funny. It's called the gum story. And uh, when I actually learn it, I'm actually going to perform it here on the podcast. So it's obviously ASL, so you can't hear it, but that'll be a way for me to encourage people to check out the video podcast. So uh, if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, you can on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Everywhere you find good podcasts, you'll find this one. You know what to do. Take a minute. Rate and review us. Give us five stars if that's what you want to give us. And if you do like the podcast, type a couple sentences about why you like it. Uh, think of one person in your life who you know would like the show and send them your favorite episode. Also, check out the video podcast. It's on YouTube. Uh, we're not popular enough that you can really find it when you search for it. So what you should do is go to thisismpod.com. That's thisismpod.com. All the episodes are there in sequence. You can find the latest one with the video podcast. You can watch it on our website or click through and subscribe to the podcast on YouTube. Otherwise, that's it for episode 80. Isn't it great? Another 10 episodes down, uh, 20 episodes away from fulfilling our goal of 100. So are things winding down, or are they just getting started? I don't know. But that'll be it for this week. Uh, We will be back next week uh, with episode 81. Until then, thank you for listening. Thank you for your time. And ciao for now.